Good morning, everyone across the country. My name is Tim Phillips. I'm president of Americans for Prosperity. I'm joining you from the American Southwest. We're out here working to build our grassroots strength in a crucial area of the country. Uh, it's a big moment for our nation. There is so much of a threat on the policy front coming out of Washington, D.C. And D.C. always makes us a little nervous. But these days, frankly, friends, it's far worse than I think I've seen it in my lifetime. We have a special guest to discuss these policy threats and what we together as activists and at Americans for Prosperity can do to protect freedom and economic uh, prosperity in this country. I'd like to introduce a good friend of mine and our South Dakota Americans for Prosperity State Director, Don Hager. Don? Thank you, Tim. And, and, I, and I know you wish you were here in, in the land of liberty. Here Absolutely. <laughs> I love your state, my friend. Uh, but uh, um, we're excited to, to be with uh, Senator John Thune, uh, our South Dakota, one of our, our senior South Dakota senator. And, and he, of course, is the, he's the minority whip this year, and he's been uh, uh, he was a congressman before he became a, a senator and, and a good longtime friend, of course, in South Dakota. We all know each other anyway, but uh, uh, I'm happy that uh, you're able to, to join us this morning and uh, Senator and, and we're going to talk uh, today about, you know, some of the some of the more important issues that are that are happening in in Washington, D.C. and throughout the country. And and so we, we appreciate you taking the time uh, to be with us this morning. Thanks, Don. Always good to be with you. Yeah, and and so let me just start with with the, the first question, and and then we'll we'll kind of see where it goes from there. Um, there there's a bill uh, being proposed uh, by the by the uh, the administration uh, dealing with infrastructure, and uh, and my concern is as as many of you know, I uh, I'm a, a affectionado of the Princess Bride, and, and my my thought is when they talk about infrastructure. My, my only reaction is, I don't think that word means what they think it means. And will you talk about the infrastructure bill for us? Yeah, sure. I, I'd be glad to, Don. And, and by the way, thank you. Thanks, Tim, for the opportunity to be with you and your members. And uh, Don does a, a great job out here in South Dakota. And it is a small state. He and I went to grad school together many years ago. So, and uh, Don went on and uh, served our uh, great state uh, superbly in the state legislature and so he's uh, seen that from from that perspective too and we are grateful that we live in a state where we do value individual freedom and responsibility and um, we hope to see more of that uh, around the country and certainly coming out of our leaders in Washington and one of the things I guess I would say about that is with respect to infrastructure uh, you're right they have broadened the definition to include a lot of things that are not infrastructure at all whether it's healthcare, care daycare or uh, electric vehicles, um, you can go right down the list of things that they are now lumping into that. They've got schools in there, they've got housing in there. Now pretty much anything on their wish list is infrastructure because that's how they intend to accomplish their agenda. About 6% of all the spending in this proposed infrastructure bill is actually what most of us, I think, would describe as infrastructure, that being highways, roads, bridges, um, maybe even some broadband. But I tell you what, when you start branching out and spend $2.5 trillion, uh, you're covering an awful lot of things that uh, don't even pertain in, in an indirect way to infrastructure. And part of it's the climate agenda, part of it's the Green New Deal, but um, we have to do everything we can. I hope your members at the grassroots level will really weigh in. We've got to try and stop this thing. We are spending money hand over fist, and this is yet another example of um, a, trillions being added to the federal debt 
uh, sort of under the guise of doing something that, again, traditionally has been something of a bipartisan issue. But when you load it up with the kind of um, excess liberal spending priorities that these guys have included in here, it is a far cry from infrastructure and it is a danger to the country long term uh, because of the kind of uh, bondage that it puts us in with respect to the debt. Yeah. And, and Senator, this is the second big spending bill just in the last month or so. They just passed a $1.9 trillion, frankly, an ideological wish list of, of the extreme left. And I was really, we were thankful that every Republican in your caucus in the Senate voted no on that. And I, I think that's a good sign for Republicans that they are united and, and trying uh, to, to stem this tide of, of just big government spending and ideological extremism from the left. It's, it's not good for our country. But, but there's something else uh, that's deeply concerning, even beyond this bill that you just discussed with Don, uh, and, and that is the filibuster. You know, our nation is precariously and very closely divided. The Senate is 50 to 50. The, the House is as close as it's been in a long time. Republicans have a slight edge in governorships, but that's close. Uh, you know, it was a close presidential race. With the nation so divided, it, it seems like this is the worst possible time to do away with a filibuster, a mechanism that, that helps bring our country together and find common ground. I know there's all kind of rumors swirling in Washington. Some, I know uh, Schumer and others have said, we, we wanted to get rid of this thing. And Durbin has said that. Can you give us a sense, some insight on, A, what that would do to the country? And, and then B, where we stand and what we can do about it? Well, I'll tell you, taking B first, Tim, um, the only thing right now standing between us and them blowing up the filibuster and trying to move their entire agenda at 51 votes, which would be incredibly dangerous and transformative, frankly, to the country, which is actually what they're talking about, is uh, Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema. I mean, he's got two, two Democrats who've gone on the record publicly to say that they're not going to vote to do away with the legislative filibuster. But to your first point, it, it, it would fundamentally change not only the United States Senate, the one institution that our founders intended to provide a check and balance against major, majoritarian rule and to give a voice to the minority, um, but it would enable the Democrats to literally move from HR1, which is the federal takeover of our election system in this country, to the Green New Deal, to DC statehood. Uh, to Medicare for all. I mean, you name it. It is it is unlimited. The sky's the limit. And that's what they're talking about doing. And they're even on a, on a, on a uh, I guess, a more probably uh, less draconian basis trying to come up with additional ways to use the budget reconciliation process, which is the only process today under law that allows them to move an agenda at 51. Typically, as you pointed out, it requires 60, which requires negotiation and bipartisan input. We have seen none of that. None of that. From an administration that professed to be about unity, um, they have done. There have been zero effort to reach out uh, to Republicans to get our input, and I think that that's because they have this idea in mind that they can do everything that they want to do at 51, and if it means blowing up the filibuster, uh, so be it. But that would be that would change fundamentally this country uh, in a permanent way for the future, and uh, in a very um, negative way because what would happen is every time you change the majority in the Congress, policies would flip back and forth. And you know they're talking about undoing all the tax policy that we did in 2017 after people have made decisions and investment based upon 
that law. And, uh, you know, imagine trying to figure out on the death tax when you can die, uh, depending on when the, you know, who's in the majority in the Congress as to whether or not you're going to get hammered uh, at death with the death tax. So there's just so many implications of this. It is incredibly dangerous. And again, hoping that your members will really weigh in and just in, hold people accountable and make sure that those two Democrats don't buckle under the weight that inevitably is going to come from their leadership. Yeah, and before I turn it back to Don, on that point, folks watching, uh, you can click on the I Volunteer link in the link here on this Facebook Live. And I would urge you to do that. Make your voice heard. It's a big moment for the country. Here's Senator Thune talking about the, the policy threats to our prosperity, uh, to our freedom, and to, and to our nation in a broader sense. So make your voice heard. I, I know you may be thinking, hey, I, my senator is going to do what they're going to do. They need to hear from you. It's good for them to hear from folks back home in their states. And especially if you're watching from Arizona or West Virginia, or you know folks there, have them reach out to Senator Manchin and Senator Sinema. Uh, but, but no matter where you are, make your voice heard. It takes about 45 seconds to a minute. Click on that I Volunteer link. If you've got a senator who's doing the right thing, frankly, they need to know you've got their back. That's a good thing. That's an encouraging thing. These senators and House members, they get you know, kind of beaten up a lot from all different sides, the media. If they're doing the right thing, let them know it. So I just wanted to urge you to do that. Don, go ahead. Yeah, I appreciate that, Tim. And, and yeah, if there was ever a time to, to get involved and, uh, and, and more than just talk about it over, over coffee, but to actually take action, uh, this, is, this, is, this is that time. Mm -hmm. um, so Senator, uh, you know, you talked a little bit about the death tax, but but the, the the administration is also talking about a whole host of other tax increases that uh, rolling back, as you said, the Tax Reform Act of of uh, of eighteen and and uh, you know what was what what do you think the impact of, of those tax increases would be on our economy? Well, Don, I think it'd be crushing the economy, and and uh, and to the point Tim made earlier, I think it is is important. There's no substitute for personal contact, and so members need to hear if they're if they're taking the right position, reinforce it, um, uh, help them. You know, if they're not, obviously, uh, let them know that. But I just think it's that that's incredibly important. Um, so there's nothing, there's no substitute for grassroots action to get people's attention in Washington. Uh, but to your question, Don, yes, I mean, the tax agenda that they have laid out, whether it's doing away with the stepped up basis in, in capital gains taxation or completely reversing the uh, international rules, which we changed in 2017 to create a more a level playing field for American companies that are competing on the global stage. Um, those were changes that were designed not only to reform the code and make it, uh, you know, make, make us more competitive, and to get growth in the economy. Um, but you know, there were changes that were 30 years overdue. And, and so now finally, we've got some of these things done. And I would add to that category, the death tax, we increased the exclusion. They're talking about letting that snap back um, to the level that it was pre uh, 2017. And I mean, it would, it would just be a disaster for farmers and ranchers and small businesses across this country if you could only uh, exclude a million dollars um, of assets when you die. So that's a that's a huge thing. The individual tax increases uh, in the higher ends, you know, they talk about that hitting rich people, but that also hits all the pass through businesses, uh, LLCs, S corps, partnerships, and in South Dakota, as you know, about ninety nine percent of our businesses are organized that way. So it's not just 
singling out big corporate America. They're going to do that anyway. They're going to raise the, the, the rate on C rate or on C corporations. But it is this this is going to you know, they, they talk about um, this stimulus being good for the economy. The thing that's going to be horrible for the economy is all the tax increases that come with it. The economy's doing fine. It's we're coming out of this. We're expecting good growth this year. If Congress does nothing, flooding the zone with more federal money paid for uh, with debt and on the backs of the American taxpayer is going to be incredibly detrimental to the recovery. And I, I can't emphasize enough um, just how important it is that we do everything we can to defeat this. Yeah. Senator, just a moment ago, you, you mentioned the Senate Resolution 1 and, and the House, it was House Resolution 1 that, that was really just jammed through the House. Not even committee hearings in the House were allowed. It was really, uh, Speaker Pelosi just did not allow a public hearing and discussion. Uh, you mentioned the word, I think you said it federalizes our elections. Can, can you let folks know for a moment, because that, that's one of those terms that may not be getting, uh, let folks know what that means in practice for a state like South Dakota, or I was in Texas uh, just a couple of days ago, what it means for a state like Texas, if this Senate resolution, if they kill the filibuster or, or do away with it and jam it through with just 51 votes, it, it fundamentally changes elections. Is that a fair way to put it? Yeah, it is. It is a huge, huge uh, hostile takeover of American elections, and it would take away the power from the states. I mean, what a part of the Democrat agenda for a long time has been to consolidate and centralize power in Washington. And the best way to do that is to bring control and regulation of elections to Washington, D.C. at the federal level. Right now, and our founders designed it this way, we've got 50 different states and they administer elections it works well. It's harder to hack into from an election security and integrity standpoint because you got 50 different systems that you'd have to hack into. And they codify ballot harvesting, which is a horrible practice. They ban photo ID, which is something that uh, on the order of 30 states have in place. And again, an election integrity measure, if people who come in and vote, they ought to be able to prove they are who they say they are. I mean, I think photo ID is just a fundamental uh, election integrity measure, but they would ban that. Um, they would force the taxpayers to finance elections. So now public campaigns, federal elections, this country would be paid for by the American taxpayer. We would be writing the checks to cover the cost of running elections in this country. And then finally, and this is, these are just some of the elements of this, but they would politicize the Federal Election Commission, which regulates elections in our country by making it a partisan commission. Right now it's 3-3, they have to strike a balance and it would turn the Federal Election Commission into a partisan agency uh, which even countries around the world that um, we would probably characterize as banana republics don't do that. So this is, a, this is a, an incredibly far-reaching and, again, transformative measure that the Democrats, I think, would help lock, believe, would help lock in a permanent majority for them in the Congress and, uh, and do what they've always wanted to do, and that is to federalize and bring the control for our elections up to the federal level and do away with and take power from further take power from the state. So uh, this, this is, it is, and this is the thing they're talking about blowing the legislative filibuster up over because they know how, uh, you know, just incredibly uh, profound the impact would be on their ability to continue to hold power in Washington. Yeah, and so ladies and gentlemen watching, when you hear uh, someone on the left or a Democrat in the Senate talking about voting rights, what they're calling voting rights is what Senator Thune just described, a complete, as he said, takeover 
of, of state election ability and, and it makes it a partisan election system. So you're gonna hear that term a lot, folks. You're gonna hear voting rights. That's not what this is at all. It's Orwellian language, it really is. So we're urging you to take action on this, click on that I volunteer link and make your voice heard. Don? Thank you, Tim. And you know, Senator, let's switch gears a little bit. Um, I, here at Americans for Prosperity, I, we've been longtime advocates for immigration reform. And uh, I know that you were just down, uh, uh, was it last week at the border and, and you saw firsthand what was going on, the, the, the massive uh, increase in, in, uh, in individuals trying to cross the border. Uh, talk to us about what you saw and, and uh, uh, what, do you think, what you think we should do. Don, I think that, you know, what we need to do is, you know, go back to the policies that were working. I think the current administration was in such a hurry to, to do everything completely opposite of the previous administration that the first thing that the President Biden did when he got into office was he did away, revoked the emergency declaration on the border. And, and so that sent a message to people in Honduras and El Salvador and Guatemala, Guatemala and Mexico, come. You know, it was a big welcome sign. And then he followed up by suspending the building, you know, funding for the construction of the wall, which the Border Patrol will tell you is incredibly important to our border security. Uh, they did away with the uh, what they call the MPP, uh, which is the Migrant Protection Program or the Remain in Mexico program for people who are seeking asylum, allowed them now to come into the country. And when they get here, we don't have the capacity to hear their cases or adjudicate their cases. So they release them and tell them to come back in 30 or 60 days. And a handful of them actually do. I mean, 7% or something like that. I'm not even sure why it's that high. I mean, once they're in the country. So they're flooding across literally thousands and thousands by the day, overwhelming border patrol, overwhelming our facilities. It's a humanitarian crisis. You've got kids that are packed in like sardines in these facilities. It is a public health crisis because many of them are coming in with COVID and being released into the country. And, uh, and obviously, you know, the solution is one, enforce our immigration law, recognize that we are a nation of immigrants, but we're also a nation of laws. And we have to clearly have a path to get people here legally. And I'm, I agree with you. Uh, we need workers in the workforce for jobs, some of which won't be, you know, filled by domestic workers. But we ought to create a legal mechanism and make it clear to people who want to come here, follow the law, come here according to the rules and the law. Uh, don't try and come here illegally. And they have got to change. Administration's got to change the messaging on that. And they've got to change these policies back and start allowing the, the wall to be built. Right now, you got 50% or more of Border Patrol personnel who are doing nothing but supervising people in these facilities rather than enforcing the, the, uh, the border against the smugglers and the traffickers and the cartels who are getting rich, literally rich, uh, doing this. And, you know, there's reporting now that there are terrorist elements trying to come in across the border. Uh, this is a disaster in the making and one that was totally preventable because they were forewarned that this is what would happen. And the administration went ahead anyway. So it's uh, it is a huge problem and one that they need to get a grip on uh, because it's getting worse by the day. Senator, I know we're getting to close to, to, the, to the end of this wrap up and we've discussed a lot of really uh, difficult, tough, frankly, dire policies that are going to hurt this country if they pass. I've watched you, though, for a long time. I know you, you maintain an optimism, a hope for this country. As we wrap up, 
give us a sense of why you still have an optimism. We know these challenges are great. We know they could dramatically take our country in, a, in the wrong direction. Give folks a sense of why you're still optimistic and moving forward what we can do. You know, I, I, the, the thing is, Tim, and I know it's very frustrating, and uh, I, a quote that I sometimes said is, it's always darkest before it's black. Um, I think that's the way a lot of people look at the, you know, things right now. But um, Americans are a hopeful nation. We're a hopeful people, and we're a resilient people because we believe that freedom comes with sacrifice. It comes with a price. It's, you know, it has to be fought for and defended. Uh, by each generation of Americans. And it falls on all of us to do our job and our duty when the time comes to defend those freedoms. And those freedoms are being threatened right now uh, by the forces of big government and uh, you know, a secularist, secularist society and uh, out there constantly trying to undermine these things. But I was watching, interestingly enough, yesterday, uh, Reagan's speech uh, in, in 1984 at Point du Hoc and uh, Normandy, and the language of that was so uplifting, and it really, I think, articulated what this country is all about. Those who have sacrificed in the past, and uh, and obviously those in the present who are tasked with uh, maintaining this republic in a way that preserves it for future generations. So yes, I'm optimistic, um, you know, and, and being Scandinavian, that's kind of hard because we usually see the, the glass uh, half empty, but um, you know, I just think as a nation, we have to pull together right now. And those of us who uh, believe in freedom at the grassroots level engage in a way uh, like we never have before to start taking this country back. And it can start in the 22 election by getting the Senate and the House back, because right now we have no check and balance against a runaway liberal agenda, which if they do succeed in getting rid of the legislative filibuster, it will be Katie bar the door. There will be no limit to what they can do. Um, so we've got to work it out for us, but we've been in this position before and the American people need to step up and, uh, and take our country and uh, preserve it for the next generation. Well said. Senator John Thune from South Dakota. And ladies and gentlemen, you heard the charge. Uh, we've got to work at this moment. It's, it's a big moment for the country. There are inflection points that are just bigger than others. And these coming weeks are an inflection point. Let's do our part. You know, whenever this is over and we've weathered this and pushed through and we're stronger and more prosperous and freer down the road, just make sure as an individual, you can look back and say, I did my part. I did everything I could for my family and for my job and for my country at a key moment. I, I reached out, I organized, I called, I, I attended rallies, events. I, I got out there and I worked and I fought. Let's make sure that we can all say that together. Don Hager, our state director out in South Dakota. Thank you, my friend, for all you do. And ladies and gentlemen, let's keep working. Goodbye, everybody.